Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Uh, we just read through verse 8, but it's actually the whole chapter. So let me just start real quick by reading the rest of those verses, and then, and then we'll pray and we'll get into it. It won't, they won't be up here, by the way. Okay, so, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, of silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, of bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafarers, men, sailors, and all who, whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out loud, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment 
for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the, the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeteers will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any crafts will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and all who have been sent, slain on earth. Let me pray for us. Lord God in heaven, uh, I, I pray that you would that you would speak through me, Lord, um, that you would, through the Holy Spirit, prick our hearts. Help us be honest with ourselves as we open your word and receive your truths. But I also pray that the Spirit would be a source of comfort and hope, that we would be reminded of your grace and your goodness in our lives so that we can live lives that are glorifying to you and good for our souls and for those around us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Uh, recently, I read a book called Everything Sad is Untrue, and I'm laughing because every time I see Chris right now, he makes fun of me because I'm always talking about this book. So of course, I'm gonna figure out a way to put it in my sermon. But the book is about this, uh, it's written by this, by, by this guy who kind of writes as his 12-year-old self. And don't worry, I won't ruin the end of the book for anybody who's currently reading it. Uh, it's about this woman named Seema. And Seema grew up in Iran. Um, and her legacy is that she has like these grandfathers, these grandparents that are descendants of kings and queens. So her and her husband are incredibly wealthy. Like they don't just own mansions, they own entire villages. He drives a, a gold Cadillac. She went to school, got her doctorates, and has like this respected practice in one of their villages. And on this trip to London for a wedding, Seema converts to Christianity. In Iran, at that time, I'm, I think it's still true today, but especially at that time, to convert to Christianity from Islam was punishable by death. And Seema wasn't just any... Iranian woman. She was also a Saeed. A Saeed, for those of you guys who don't know, is someone who can trace their blood lineage directly back to Muhammad himself. So for her to convert, it's like this unspeakable, unfathomable crime. And her conversion ends up getting found out. And to make a long story short, basically under the cover of night, her and her two kids have to escape Iran. And they end up like, in, uh, first they end up homeless in the Middle East, then they end up at a refugee camp in Italy, and they finally settle in Oklahoma. But she goes from being treated basically like a, a queen to being an unwanted refugee from wealth and comfort and respect to poverty from being a queen in her hometown to a refugee without a home. 
from friends and family that respected her to living in a country that thought of her as an enemy. And she did all of that for her faith. And as you read the book, I, I feel like you can't help but like wonder, do I have this kind of faith? Do I have the kind of faith that I would hold fast to even if it was the reason, the cause for my discomfort, for my poverty, even putting my life and my own children's lives in danger? Like, do I have the kind of faith that would drive me to hold fast to that in spite of those things? And it's easy to be like, yeah, like for sure I have that kind of faith. But also I say that as a safe middle-class Western American under absolutely no threat of any of those things happening to a degree, which then makes you wonder, is, is my life centered on the glory of God or the glory of self? Is my life really about his glory or is it mostly about like my comfort, my safety, my own personal glory? And that's what Revelation 18 is all about. It's this moment in eschatological history that makes us ask the question, whose name does my life glorify? Is it God's or is it my own? Because in chapter 18, you've got God defeating or destroying Babylon, which is both a city and a prostitute. And ultimately, what we just read are these two songs. And I don't know if you guys noticed, but there's two responses to the destruction of Babylon. Response number one is a bunch of people wailing, and they're like scared and upset because these are the people that depended on her. They, they believed in the promises of Babylon to provide for them safety and luxury and self-glory and autonomy. And their world is crashing down on them. So they're like pouring dirt on them. They're saying, woe is me, alas, what are we gonna do? There goes our comfort and safety and security, all the things that we've fought and longed for for our entire lives. What do we do now? Because it's all going to waste. But then there's this second group of people right at the end that are celebrating her destruction because to them, the destruction of the kingdom of man means that the kingdom of God will finally come to bear. They are celebrating because they know that soon the glory of God will be shining upon them. And so... I think we have to kind of, as we read chapter 18, wonder like, which one of these would I be? As a reminder, we're reading apocalyptic literature, which means there's a lot of symbolism and metaphors. And for this city slash prostitute, it is a, a, another one of those metaphors and symbolism. And for us, the metaphor and symbolism is the attractive, seductive allure of wealth, power, praise, and comfort. This makes Babylon 
this city relevant to all people at all times, at all places. In other words, like it doesn't help anybody to ask like, oh, well, it doesn't have help you and I to pretend like Babylon is Russia or China or Rome 2000 years ago because Babylon is not those things, yet it actually is those things. See, the way Revelation 18 uses Babylon's name is like this. It's like Babylon is Russia to a Russian nationalist. Babylon is China to a Chinese communist. Babylon is Rome to a Roman centurion. And for us, the prostitute Babylon is this seductive power of the American dream. Babylon is the autonomous, hyper-individualistic, hyper-sexualized, consumeristic American life. For us, Babylon is the comfort and security and safety of the middle-class life. By the way, I don't know if you guys noticed, but we're like three or four volunteers away from having children's ministry be full-time again. So if you're not currently volunteering, now's your chance. And if you're a parent that doesn't volunteer and you're on your way home today and your kid's like, what's a prostitute? That's a sign you should volunteer. <laughs> That's on you. I think the best way to understand why Revelation calls this alluring prostitute Babylon is found in the Old Testament. There's this moment where, uh, well, first, it's important to remember that Israel always sees their life and their story through the story of the Old Testament. And so there's this moment in the Old Testament where Israel has been brought out of uh, Egyptian slavery. They spent time in the wilderness. They finally landed in the promised land. Um, and God gives them some things that they got to do. And God's people begins to break their promise. And so in this moment, God sends these prophets to, to, uh, to his people to try to get them to repent, to stop what they're doing. And he warns them, like, if you don't knock it off, you're going to go through another kind of exile. And God's people basically give him the cold shoulder. And so God ultimately uses their enemy, Babylon, to sack Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem and enslave his people. And so now Babylon, I should say, now God's people are back to being exiles and they're enslaved to another place called Babylon. And while they're there, God sends them prophets again. And he tells them, while you are waiting for your return to the promised land, you ought to work here for the good of the city, but do not adopt their false gods. Do not adopt their customs and their ways of looking at the world. In other words, he warns them, while exiles in Babylon, don't isolate, participate, but never assimilate. Because Babylon is not their home. And of course, many of God's people don't heed their warning. In the Old Testament, we see that they begin to once again worship false gods, Babylonian gods. And it's interesting because the Old Testament tells us that the reason why they began to worship false gods was to gain protection, comfort, and influence. See, to God's people, worshiping Babylonian gods was sort of their lesser of two evils. 
They stopped trusting in God's plan to redeem them and bring them back into the promised land and instead enslaved themselves again to false gods, hoping to make Babylon their own version of paradise, of the promised land. And so John, in Revelation, is trying to make us see that Babylon is whatever cultural influence entices you in that same way to put your hope in man's way rather than how, rather than what God is doing. So let's look at it from a financial sense because that's like the prominent theme here. What does assimilation, what does it look like to adopt the Babylonian way? What does assimilation look like? How does the Western view of money compare to what God says about it? Well, it's hyper-individualistic entitled and even often Darwinian, right? Like we have this Darwinian view of economics. It's survival of the finites. My money is my money. Whatever I earn and make and keep is for me and you go do your own thing. And if you're incapable of doing it, then too bad, that's on you. Finances or money is how I found, how we can find safety and comfort and security in the world. If we have a big enough savings account or the proper kind of retirement or pension, then we feel comfortable. It's also a source of personal value, right? Like we can, we can feel superior than others. Often people, the, aff, the most affluent are treated with a higher degree of respect and dignity than those at the bottom. It's also how we can buy health, how we can look younger, and it's a source of power and control over people. Some people view it as a way of buying friends or if you're affluent enough, it's literally how you can turn the political tides to your favor. And so money provides comfort and security, praise and respect, power and influence. And this is exactly what the Babylonian way is. Look at verse seven. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. That last part, mourning I shall never see, one of the commentators pointed out that it could be translated to, I should never feel uncomfortable. And isn't that like the American way? We should never feel uncomfortable. If we're uncomfortable, something went wrong. And look at the way this kind of thinking turns out for Babylon. A couple of verses here. Verse five, her sins are heaped high as heaven, which is an allusion to the Tower of Babel. Or verse six, God will pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Verse 22, the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpets will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will be seen in you no more. That last verse is a part of the song. And it's like this poetic way of saying like all of the beauty and goodness that comes with culture, like art and history and work that is good and glorifying to God, all of that will be in ruin. None of that will be there in Babylon. In other words, 
Babylon cannot deliver on her promises of beauty and goodness and security because ultimately those things are not hers to offer. And we kind of, we know this, right? Like we know that, we've talked about this before, we know that a little bit more is never actually enough. Like often we think like, man, if I just had a little bit more money in the savings account, then we'd be safe and secure. But we never get there. Or like often we'll think to ourselves like, I'm just one raise away from being like a, a consistently generous person. And then we get that raise and it doesn't make us any more generous. And we think to myself like, if, if we can just earn this much, if our income level just here, like we wouldn't need any more money. And then we get there and it feels like it's not enough. Here's what ends up happening anytime uh, someone talks about finances from the pulpit. Is that someone might think like, this only somewhat applies to me because I'm not one of the rich, like top 1%. I'm just middle class. And Chapter 18 talks about the rich. Verse 9 talks about the kings of the earth. But look at verse 11. In the merchants of the earth, weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. The merchants of the earth, that's like Revelations 18's way of saying the middle class, not the top 1%, not the power brokers of the economy, not the politically elite, but the regular, everyday, middle-class American in Revelation 18 is mourning the loss of Babylon because it turns out they were in bed with her too. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 12. Watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in abundance of his possessions. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, I have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, never something you want to hear God say to you. This very night, your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I'm just going to read that first opening line again. Watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in abundance of his possessions. Our Babylonian way is hyper-individualistic. It can be entitled, and it's often Darwinian. It's self-preservation and self-glory. God's way is, is very different. Again, it's participation without assimilation. First, he reminds us that we are stewards of his grace, that there's no possible way that we could ever feel entitled because at the end of the day, everything we have truly belongs to him. 
I mean, he's the one that decides that you were born with a healthy body. Like if you have a healthy working body, that is God's grace. If you have a healthy working mind, that is God's grace. Or the fact that you were born in one of the wealthiest places during one of the wealthiest times in human history is also an aspect of God's grace in your life. You did not choose to be born here. Like any one of us by his grace could have been born as a an impoverished person in India. So we are stewards. And a steward, that, that word means that we recognize that all that we have actually doesn't belong to us, that we were overseers of someone else's goods, of God's finances. The second way that God's way is very different than Babylonian way is that we can find our security in Christ. Ultimately, the unshakable security that we long for is ultimately found in God's love for us. This is something that I think Sima understood, which is why she subjected herself to poverty for the sake of her faith. And because of this, we are free to enjoy God's gifts to us. We are empowered to make a difference by playing an active role in what God is doing. It's interesting, talking about uh, uh, generosity, I came across this Harvard study where they discovered that giving money away, buying something for someone else actually increases, has a greater level of dopamine in your brain than it does for buying something for yourself. In other words, instead of retail therapy, like we should do generosity therapy. And it's funny because it's like, uh, this is what we talk about all the time in one of the confessions, like, we are not our own. We belong to God and his, his glory and our good are intermixed together. It's like when we are glorifying him, we have a God who is a generous God, who is a giving God. We are made in, in his image to reflect his generosity and his goodness in the world. And when we do that, we find a greater source of joy. Harvard's basically just keeping up with the Bible. That was like a really fundamentalist comment. Sorry. Here's what happens. Another thing that ends up happening when, when we talk about finances at church is that someone in their mind might be like, okay, how much? Like 10%, how often? Before or after taxes, to who? The church, who else? Like we kind of just want to write a check. But the thing is we can't pay off God. Like we can't treat God like the IRS. This ultimately isn't about how much you give, it's about the condition of our hearts and the way that we look at all of our finances. It's about where we put our hope. It's about recognizing that all we have has been given to us by him and is meant for his glory and our good. Not our like my individual good, but like our collective, our collective good. Leviticus 23, 22 says it like this. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigner living among you. I am the Lord, your God. Man, we just don't live that way, do we? Do you know that the United States of America makes up for 5% of the world's population but consumes 25% of its goods. Like we are consumeristic with the way we view the world. And it's not working. 
Like it's not making us any happier. We never feel like we have enough. We never feel like we save enough. The average American buys and sells in, I'm sorry, the average American, Orange County, at one point, an average home was bought and sold every seven to 10 years. I remember when Kelly and I like got our very first home that night, I laid down on my bed and I was like, dude, we did it. This is amazing. Any of us who are homeowners have had that feeling. And like fast forward seven to 10 years later, we're like, if only we had a new kitchen or if only an extra 500 feet or a big enough backyard for X, Y, and Z, like we never have enough. And don't mishear me because I'm not, I'm not saying that we can't spin on ourselves. Like we're not supposed to be, we're not all called to be like live some monkish lifestyle. There is a responsibility to saving for a rainy day, for retirement, for whatever. And God does want us to enjoy the fruits of our labor. labor. I'm talking more about how we save and spend our money. I'm talking about spending in a way that is never satisfying and saving in a way that never feels safe. Thomas Brooks says it like this. Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. That's that like just a little bit more. It's this insatiable desire. We are never full. Our thirst is never quenched. It's a lie that happiness and security and comfort is just on the other side. And it's pulling us away from the joy and security that we could have in God. It's a bait and switch. And it's leading us to dull lives. I love the poet Albert Camus. He's got like the best way of just critiquing American culture. And he lived here. He was allowed to do it. Here's what he says. It was an ordinary town. The inhabitants lived busy, money-centered, and denatured lives. They barely noticed that they are alive. Every time I read that, it like hits me. What if the joy of generosity and the security found in our Savior was available to us right now, today? The thing is, it is. And the most important verse in this entire chapter is chapter four. It's a call to repentance. Look at it again. This is God calling his, or the angel calling God's people out. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Verse four is a call to repentance for us all, to turn to God for his goodness and his promises, to not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Paul would say. And it's ultimately an opportunity to find rest for our anxious and weary and overworked souls. Because the thing is, what what John's trying to remind us is that it is better or better than being clothed in luxury is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God's way is better than our way. I think that that's something that Sema understood in that book that I read. 
As her son puts it, she became a refugee in a place that people hated refugees. And in the story, you find out that she ends up getting beat up. She has to take like the public bus. She gets spit on. She's working two jobs, single mom taking care of her two kids. And mind you, she was treated like a queen. And now she's this hated immigrant. And this is how the 12-year-old puts it. Well, he's writing as his 12-year-old self. It says this. When I tell the story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up to that point, I've told them about the house with the birds in the walls, all the villages my grandfather owned, all the gold, my mom's own medical practice, all the amazing things that she had that we don't have anymore because she became a Christian, all the money she gave up, so we're poor now, but I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks him in the eye with the begging hope that they'll hear her. And she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? It's true and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of per Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and your family in a home, in the best cream puffs of Jolfa, and even maybe your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true, that there is a God, and he wants you to believe in him, and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else, because heaven's waiting on the other side. How do we believe the way Sima believes? How do we have the kind of faith that would bring Sima a more fulfilling life in poverty than in wealth? I think the power comes only from looking to Jesus. Only when we're able to glimpse his love for us are we able to understand what Sima understood. And I've shared this before, but there's this other story of a prostitute in the Old Testament named Gomer. Hosea is this prophet, and God, uh, God's people are rebelling against him. And so he goes to Hosea, and he says, like, every time my, my people turn away from me, it's like a bride, a wife that, uh, that leaves her husband. So he wants Homer to, to know what it feels like, Homer, uh, Hosea, to know what it feels like. And so he has Hosea marry a prostitute named Gomer. And they have three kids together. And eventually, Gomer ends up uh, uh, leaving Hosea and going to be with another man. And after some time, we don't know exactly what happens, but Gomer is sold back into prostitution. She's beaten, uh, betrayed. And so God goes back to Hosea and he says, he takes him back into the marketplace. He has him find Gomer being sold. And he says, go in there and buy her back and bring her home and make her your bride again. Clean her up and make her your bride again. And that's exactly what he does. And then God tells him, like, that's what I'm going to do with my people. And he, he says it like this, I will make you lie down in safety. I will allure her and bring her out of the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That is the kind of love that God has for us. And I think that when we glimpse that, 
when we realize how God has loved us, when we realize that it is God who steps into the marketplace and buys us back. And for Hosea, it costed him nothing because Gomer was seen as worthless in her day at that point. But for us, it cost Jesus everything. He gave everything up so that you and I would be in need of nothing. And when we understand that kind of love, then we will understand, I think, what Sema understood, that heaven's waiting for us on the other side. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.